Welcome back to Screen Time with Rowan Roper. I'm Ro Khan. And I'm Richard Roper. We're going to take a deep dive into Silence of the Lambs because this is the 30th anniversary of its release. Released on February 14th, 1991, a Valentine's Day memory that I'm sure still sticks with many a couple who went on a first or second or perhaps last date to see The Silence of the Lambs on Valentine's Day, 1991. Imagine it as a first date movie and what the girl must be thinking when the guy takes her to a sexual predator serial killer movie. Not since... Robert De Niro as Travis Bickle took Sybil Shepard to see a porn movie in Taxi Driver. Has there been such a bad choice? And, of course, Taxi Driver featured a very young Jodie Foster in an incredible performance. And then 15 years later, Oscar-winning work in The Silence of the Lambs. We'll get to that, but first, Screen Time with Rowan Roper being brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner since 1995. AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business success. Because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Get started today at AmericanEagle.com. Starline. Clarice in. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Crawford. Sorry to pull you off the course at such short notice. Your instructors tell me you're doing well. Top quarter of your class. I hope so. They haven't posted any grades yet. A job's come up, and I thought about you. Not a job, really. More of an interesting errand. Sit down. Yes, sir. I remember you from my seminar at UVA. <laughs> You grilled me pretty hard, as I recall, on the Bureau's civil rights record in the Hoover years. I gave you an A. A minus, sir. That's Scott Glenn as FBI agent Jack Crawford welcoming FBI trainee yet to graduate Clarice Starling and letting her know there's a case that he thinks she might have a unique ability to help crack and she's going to be introduced to Dr. Hannibal Lecter. One of the opening scenes in The Silence of the Lambs, which as we mentioned, Roe, was released 30 years ago, Valentine's Day weekend, really President's Day weekend, which is one of the reasons why it was brought out that weekend for that four-day box office. The studio knew that they had possibly a monster hit. Didn't know necessarily an Oscar contender. It's a film and a franchise that continues to resonate and has so many spinoffs and prequels. This movie, it's amazing the generational hold it has on film viewers, film lovers, and filmmakers. This is one of the great duo performances, the way Sir Anthony Hopkins plays off of Jodie Foster. Just as actors, there are so many dramatic scenes, especially the ones that introduce the differential between the two. Oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No. I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling robe with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What is your father to you? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the land? You know how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the apple pie. 
But Jodie Foster wasn't even the first, second, or third choice for this movie. Well, I know Michelle Pfeiffer has talked about the fact that she turned down the role because she thought the ending was just too dark. And Michelle Pfeiffer just didn't want to star in a movie that had such a such a dark overall feeling to it. Didn't want to put that out into the universe. Meg Ryan also turned it down for the same reason. And Laura Dern was up for the role, but then the producers decided that she may not be perfect. And Laura Dern, out of that group of actresses, all of them quite wonderful, is the one I could most picture because she's got more of a character actress than leading lady feel that she could do both. But Jodie Foster obviously was perfectly cast. Anthony Hopkins is on screen for about 20 minutes in a movie that's just under two hours. And I used to grouse about that, saying he should have been up for Best Supporting Actor. They put him up for Best Actor because there are no steadfast rules. It's kind of up to the studio. But, Ro, after I've watched the movie through the years and thought about it, it is a lead performance because in those 20 minutes, he's the dominant character, but he's also the dominant lead when he's off screen. The way he just creeps into the minds and souls of everyone, even as they talk about him, or even in the scenes where Jodie Foster is with Scott Glenn and those scenes. And it's a great performance by Scott Glenn, but it's not the showcase over the top resident performance. So it really is a lead performance by Sir Anthony Hopkins. When you watch this movie through the lens of 2021, you see what a difference three decades makes because in this movie, Clarice Darling is really an old school feminist icon because her character is constantly getting hit on and hassled by a lot of the male characters in this movie. You know, we get a lot of detectives here, but I must say I can't ever remember one as attractive. Will you be in Baltimore overnight? Because this can be quite a fun town if you have the right guide. I'm sure this is a great town, Dr. Chilton, but um, my instructions are to talk to Dr. Lecter and report back this afternoon. I see. Let's make this quick, then. She was so smart, Clary Starling, and knew if she was a woman in a man's world, but also knew if she was just going to be pointing that out all the time, she was never going to succeed. So from the moment she's you know running through the woods in the training sequence through going into Jack Crawford's office, there's a famous shot that's framed where she gets on the elevator and she's about a foot shorter than all the men in the elevator. Then right before the autopsy, all these state troopers giving her the eye and the way she gets rid of them. She talks, tells about how they've all been gentlemen, almost like you're an officer and a gentleman. Now get out because I'm going to do my work. And throughout it, she asserts herself that makes it very clear she's not going to put up with any of this bullshit, but she's also going to work through it. And even after she shuts down the creepy, slimy Dr. Chilton, then he's all bummed out because he had to walk her all the way down there because she wants to see Lecter alone, but she even knows how to defuse that situation. If Lecter feels that you're his enemy, then um, well, maybe we'll have more luck if I go in by myself. What do you think? You might have suggested this in my office and saved me the time. Yes, sir. Then I, I would have missed the pleasure of your company, sir. The director here is Jonathan Demme, who in the 1980s sprung to prominence making concert films and videos, but then went on to a string of great commercial and critical success number of Oscar nominations, but this by far is his darkest film. It's amazing because a lot of great directors have been drawn to material created by Thomas Harris, the author of the original Silence of the Lambs and the sequels. Uh, in 1986, we had Manhunter, the great Michael Mann, and William Peterson, who was just becoming a big star, plays Will Graham, the FBI agent who's going after serial killers. And then there was the sequel to The Silence of the Lambs called Hannibal, which came out in 2001. And that was directed by Ridley Scott. 
And we could talk a little bit about those movies in a bit as well. But Jonathan Demme was just the perfect director for the material role. The casting was great. The production design. Howard Shore's score is one of the most memorable, I think, in movie history. So, super haunting. Interestingly enough, Jonathan Demme was not the first choice for director. Gene Hackman was. Even though he'd never directed a movie before, they wanted him to direct and star as the FBI supervisor. Well, it's interesting because I'm sure Gene Hackman would have made a great Jack Crawford, but you think physically the immediate reaction would be, oh, was he going to play Hannibal Lecter? Because he has the same kind of physicality and the same kind of essential look that Sir Anthony Hopkins brought to the role. It's happened so often in movies, as you know, Ro. It's almost never the original director, the original cast, <laughs> everybody on board. But it was a wonderful team. And this is also a movie that's such a triumph of incredible editing. I think one of the most famous sequences in film history is... The FBI thinks they've found Buffalo Bill in Calumet City, Illinois, home of the Blues Brothers, <laughs> among other movie locations, and they think they've got him. They're surrounding the house, and in the meantime, in Belvedere, Ohio, the real Buffalo Bill, that's where he lives, and a sole FBI trainee is knocking on the door of that home at the same time the FBI is crashing into the wrong place. The tension that's built up there is absolutely brilliant. A lot of great suspense films, horror films, even the ones that we love. Four-fifths of the movie is the perfect buildup, and then we just get a climactic shootout or a false ending or something that doesn't satisfy. In this case, the last 20 minutes of The Silence of the Lambs are what solidified it as not only a bona fide hit, but an Academy Award winner in the big five categories of Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Ted Talley for Best Screenplay. I want to be able to play a little bit of Sir Anthony Hopkins here because this performance is one that not only resonated with audiences back in the 1990s, but still to this very day. You can't take your eyes off him on the screen. Part of it because of Jonathan Demme's style of that really tight, just head-only close-up that he uses on a lot of characters, including prison guards and other people along the way. There's a moment where he drops his chin and he just lets his eyes pierce right through the lens of the camera. Mm. And it is so spooky, so chilling, it does not ever leave you. If I help you, Clarice, it will be turns with us too. Quid pro quo, I tell you things, you tell me things. Not about this case, though, about yourself. Quid pro quo, yes or no? Yes or no, Clarice? Poor little Catherine is waiting. It's an incredibly sophisticated and urbane performance of someone who's playing a cannibal at heart. <laughs> we see some quick flashes of his actual violence. You actually see a lot more of that in the Hannibal movie later on. That reminds us this guy's a monster. I got to talk a little bit about that famous sequence, too, that's held in the, the old courthouse there where they construct this elaborate jail cell for Dr. Hannibal Lecter, right? Because he's in Tennessee is the idea there because he was meeting with the, the senator, the mother of the girl that's in the bottom of the well with the mm -hmm. lotion in the basket. And I always, I mean, listen, it's, it's beautifully done, but of course it's like any other movie. You sit back and you go, well, why did they have 35 cops in the lobby and just the two guys upstairs with the Dr. Lecter? Maybe a few more cops up there. You know, they're giving him such nice treatment. It's movie logic, though. Yeah, for, for a cannibal, though, you know, he's got his drawings back. He's got classical music. There's a great shot where we see that he's got Bon Appetit magazine in the cell with him, which would be his uh, reading of choice. And, of course, they bring him this gourmet meal. And, and same thing, if I'm, if I'm those cops, I'll be like, all right, give me one of those 10-foot uh, poles that people won't touch things with, and I'll slide the meal to him from across the way. But, of course, they bring it into the cell. And mm. you're right. 
it's the conceit of the film. There's so many things that happen in any movie where you can say, well, wait a minute, that wouldn't happen in real life. Well, that's because this is a movie. But it just it, it is one of the most memorable sequences. And when the cops do burst in there and they see the one guard strung up, you know, like Jesus on the cross almost in this in this music, it's just one of the most horrific and memorable scenes in film history. And here's a piece of trivia. Sir Anthony Hopkins says that he fashioned Hannibal Lecter's voice after a combination of Truman Capote and Catherine Hepburn. Incredible. And, you know, he slips into different kind of dialects, too, at various moments. And then, of course, there's maybe the most famous line in the whole movie where he tells Clarice about what happened when a census taker tried to get into his head. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And it's interesting, Ro, in the original novel by Thomas Harris, and I think in the first draft of the screenplay, it was fava beans and a nice amarone, because that supposedly is a wine that would go better with that for a <laughs> meal. But the thought was that that is not a wine that necessarily everybody would know. And also, it just doesn't have that hard sound for a punchline as Chianti. And he says Chianti with an upper Midwest accent. Yeah, he, he's mocking. Again, he's mocking Clarice's relatively pedestrian upbringing and sophistication compared to his worldly ways. So there have been five movies about the character Hannibal Lecter over the last 35 years, and now CBS is making an entire series about the character of Clarice. And this comes on the heels of NBC doing Hannibal, which had a nice three-year run, kind of an operatic look at that storyline. But i got to give CBS a lot of credit with this, Row. It's called Clarice, and it picks up the story one year after the events of The Silence of the Lambs. So you have the Australian actress Rebecca Breeds playing Clarice Starling. She's still only about 23 years old in this storyline. Uh, some of the supporting characters return. So, for example, Catherine Martin, who was the, the girl who was at the bottom of the well in the movie, is now experiencing PTSD. It's a year later. She took the dog, Precious, with her, as she did at the end of the movie, and she sort of just spends her days and nights with the dog. Her mother, who was a senator, is now the United States Attorney General. So they kind of advance some of the characters. And it's really interesting because they still play up a lot of the fact that this would be in the early 1990s. And the FBI, the male-dominated FBI, a lot of them think she just got lucky with Hannibal Lecter, and that she really doesn't have the stuff. And they even play a practical joke on her where she opens her new desk and there's a, a basket with a bottle of lotion in it. Like they're kind of mocking her. And she herself is experiencing PTSD in the series. Based on the first few episodes I've had a chance to see, wrote, it's a clever concept. It's about as grisly as network television can be. It's a little uneven, but I think it has potential. It's certainly more interesting than if they just did another CSI show. You are a woman with a very public reputation for hunting monsters. I can't have a reputation. I've only done it once. It's time you own that reputation. It's time to come out of hiding, Starling. That show's definitely worth a look, and going back and watching Silence of the Lambs is worth it as well. You'll be blown away by these performances, especially if you have not seen it in the last number of years. And coming up in 30 seconds, a big movie star wants to take you back to the future and not in the way you think. I'm Bob Burke, founder and chairman of Burke America Parts Group, a family of brands that includes RepairClinic.com, an appliance and HVAC parts solution company that's grown into an international brand. Before AmericanEagle.com, we partially launched a new technology platform developed by another firm. 
American Eagle helped take our technology to a whole new level with digital marketing, software development, and business insights into our key markets, appliances, HVAC, and outdoor power equipment, and did so both on time and on budget. AmericanEagle.com has the resources, experience, and talent needed to produce solutions. Our new technology platform developed by AmericanEagle.com has produced tremendous results with higher traffic, conversion, engagement, and online revenue. If you have any home repairs you need to take care of, check us out at RepairClinic.com. If you need a world-class website or technology project, then I would highly recommend AmericanEagle.com. Call AmericanEagle.com at 773-NETWORK. That's AmericanEagle.com, 773-NETWORK. Well, just as Clarice Starling has this enduring appeal as a character, as someone who is an icon on the pop culture landscape, in a very different vein, we have Dwayne The Rock Johnson. There's your segue, (laughs) Rogue. Oh, man. But there is now a series that kind of does the same thing in terms of going back and looking at the early years. The show is called The Young Rock. It's coming to NBC. Uh, it's based on the stories that Dwayne The Rock Johnson has told through the years. You know, here's the thing about Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Rokan. I put this to you. You love that guy, right? I Who do. doesn't love The right. Rock, right? And I think most people know at least the bare basics of his story, how he grew up. His father was Rocky Johnson, professional wrestler. He grew up partially on the island of Hawaii, but then they lived in various locations across the country. And The Young Rock... As a little boy, his dad would be hanging around with the likes of Randy Macho Man Savage and Andre the Giant. And then as a teenager, he started getting into trouble. He was this oversized kid, went to the University of Miami, won a national championship in football, was a pro prospect. Career gets cut short by injury, becomes one of the most beloved pro wrestlers of all time, and then makes that incredible transition to movie stardom and just sort of this like global business icon, beloved social media figure. Now, having said all that, I will put to you, Rokan. Yes. Dwayne The Rock Johnson has become a huge movie star without making any good movies. If you really <laughs> look, and I say this as a huge fan, he's been in some pretty interesting films like Pain and Gain. Some of the Fast and Furious movies are better than the others. The offshoot Hobbs and Shaw that he was in was awful. There are a lot of terrible movies. So the setup here, Ro, is that the framing device is set in the year 2032 when Dwayne The Rock Johnson, played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, is running for president of the United States of America. And Rosario Dawson... <laughs> oh, boy, hold on. <laughs> Let me just say, I see this happening. Rosario Dawson plays the uh, general in the military who disagrees with him politically, but now is going to become his running mate. In fact, she's been critical of some of his later films, which don't exist yet, as not being violent enough. And then Randall Park, the actor, people know him from Fresh Off the Boat and a lot of other things. Right. He plays Randall Park in the future sequences, but Randall Park has made the transition from actor to 60 Minutes type investigative journalist. So he's got a long sit-down interview with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and that's the conceit that gives us the flashback sequences, which are the bulk of the series, showing us The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, as a little boy, as an adolescent, as a teenager, and then eventually as the guy that we know now. And there's some great stuff, because I don't know if this stuff really happened, but in in the series... He's a little boy. He wants to go see E.T. in the year is 1982. His parents are busy. So Andre the Giant says, I'll take you to see E.T. So there's this great sequence. <laughs> and who better, Ro, to watch E.T. with the young rock than Andre the Giant, a real-life giant who felt probably as disenfranchised and as different as E.T. himself as he walked this planet. Who could possibly play Andre the Giant? 
There's an actor by the name of Matthew Willig who does a fine job, but wrote, and I don't know his exact height, but Andre the Giant was like seven foot four, seven foot five. This guy is not the giant. He's a big guy, but he does a pretty nice job. They also have actors playing the Iron Sheik, Randy Macho Man, Savage. I mean, it's got to be a lot of fun for actors to play the wrestlers. We all kind of grew up, a lot of people grew up watching, you know, these icons from back in the day. So it's really. It's a clever conceit, but it's something you think, is this going to last? But the fact that they show different stages of Dwayne Johnson's life is what gives the series, I think, the chance to be a breakout hit. You know, you remember, too, like The Rock has talked about this. In the high school sequences, his first day at his new high school, the students and the administrators think he's a narc because he's about 6'4", and he's got a full (laughs) mustache, and he's like, I'm 15! So there's a lot of humor, but also a lot of warmth and kind of good nostalgia there. And then you get these wacky sequences set in 2032 with The Rock running for president. Dwayne Johnson for the 2032 U.S. presidential race. Are the people ready? They are not ready, but they need to see it. (laughs) Let me just take you back to when I was 10 years old living in Hawaii. Was born into a wrestling family. Of course, your dad was wrestling superstar. The soul man, Rocky Johnson. To me, he was a superhero. At the same time, I was just a regular little boy. I'll have your finest tequila. No. no. I'll have a vodka martini. No. no. A lot of us look at professional wrestling as acting, and it's amazing how many of those guys actually go on to real acting careers. Yeah, and stunt work. You know, they can do their own stunts at least for a while. Uh, Dwayne Rock Johnson, clearly the most successful of all time. But, you know, you even look at somebody like uh, Jesse the Body Ventura, who I think he's now living in Conspiracyville somewhere on an island, you know, but he's had an amazing life himself, uh, Navy SEAL or almost a Navy SEAL, whatever the case may be. And then he was the governor. But, you know, he was in Predator and he was really good in that. And then there's John Cena, who's actually been in good movies. I would agree with that, Roe. I think John Cena has the potential and has actually shown the ability because he's got that self-effacing part where he, he can play the big tough guy, but he can also make fun of himself. He's funny in those commercials. He's very natural. Uh, Dave Bautista is another one uh, from the Guardians of the Galaxy, although he's so intimidating looking. I don't know if he's going to have the roles offered to him, although he's done some family stuff. But Dave Bautista, he is the scariest looking guy I think I've ever seen in my life. And he's actually this sweetheart. I interviewed him a couple of years ago. He did a movie called A Stuber, a comedy. And when we met in a hotel lobby, he had a bodyguard with him. And listen, when you're a star and you're in the Marvel Universe, I could understand that. But I was like, that's an interesting job because this bodyguard, as impressive as he was, looked like the before ad in a bodybuilding you know, <laughs> advertisement next to Dave Bautista. But he's another one. He was in Blade Runner 2049 in a really fascinating opening sequence where you saw he's got, yes, the physicality, but also the acting chops. Vander Holyfield, in an interview once, told me that he carries a whole package of security around him because there's always someone who wants to take him on. Yeah. There's a guy who wants to hit the champ once and drop him. And the reality of that is that dude probably wouldn't be dropping the champ. The champ would have to hit him back, and then all hell breaks loose. Maybe the champ gets sued or goes to jail. Great observation, and that's true, especially in this day and age. Everybody's got beer muscles and is a tough guy. So whether it's a professional fighter or somebody who's an action star. We, you know, you and I have talked to actors who've played, who just played action stars, and people are like, you're not so tough. And they're like, no, I know I'm not so tough. That's a fake <laughs> gun, and I'm wearing makeup when I'm playing the tough guy. Another regular feature of Screen Time with Rowan Roper is who to follow. We look at social media and find accounts that are particularly interesting, and you found one. Yeah, this week I want to highlight, you know, we just came out of this 
polarizing impeachment hearing and a lot of people want to move forward. And we don't want to get political here, but I do want to recommend the Oval Poffice. And that is the official Twitter account of the White House dogs. They're two and cat. And they tell us the story of life in the Oval Office and around there. So it's the Oval Poffice. That's T-H-E-O-V-A-L-P-A-W. F-F-I-C-E, the Oval Poffice, and it's just kind of a sweet narrative. I think someone's probably ghostwriting for the dogs and cat, but you never know. <laughs> but it's from their point of view, and it's just a, a lot of fun hijinks. You get fun pictures of the dogs and the cat. And then they also just talk about being kind to animals, things you could do to help out and rescue animals in need. But as you know, Ro, we had a, we had a long, long line of presidents and pets dating back to the 19th century that was broken by the previous administration. As far as we know... There were no pets in that White House, but now we've got two dogs and a cat. And regardless of your political affiliation, it's always just kind of neat. I mean, there were some presidents that had like alligators and parakeets and shit like that, <laughs> but we got two dogs and a cat. Oh, that's that smells yeah. like Warren G. Harding to me. <laughs> the, I, the Oval Poffice. Follow them on Twitter. I don't trust people who don't like dogs. Cats, I that's for another show. This was one of the many senses of relief I have had over the last few weeks mm. is that there are finally dogs back in the White House because it just is the right thing. It's it, it, it feels human, even though it's canine. Yeah, exactly. And you know, whether it's socks, the cat or Bo, the dog, it's always just fun. And and that's the fun thing about the Oval Poffice. And, and by the way, the Twitter account is kind of written almost in a children's storybook fashion. So if you've got kids and you don't even let them on Twitter or the, you, they can only follow certain accounts, the Oval Poffice would be okay for them to follow. And these are a couple of shepherds, so these are badass dogs. Yeah, they're cool. And one's an older rescue, I believe. All right, that does it for this edition of Screen Time with Roe and Robert. Coming up next, the return of the Thursday Three. It's already sweeping the nation, or at least the floor in this particular studio. Roe and Robert podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. Speaking thereof, AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Go to AmericanEagle.com for all the information. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, like, adore this podcast, and tell all your friends. Special thanks to Screen Time Executive Producers Renee Nelson and Tim Alanius, plus Roan Roper Music and Production Director Brian Alzheimer. See you next time.